Welcome to The Landscape, the show where parks and politics get together for a good time. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. Kate is on assignment this week, as they say, out making videos in the New Mexico desert. We are recording this podcast at around 4 p.m. Mountain Time on Tuesday, November 15th. And if I am giving you a timestamp, that must mean we are going to talk about news that is still happening as we speak. We are one week past Election Day, and while we are still waiting to hear for certain whether Republicans will take control of the House, we know that Democrats are going to stay in charge in the Senate and possibly pick up a one-seat margin, depending on what happens in Georgia next month in the runoff election. A few of the races that we are still waiting on in the House have implications for public lands across the West. So let's dive in and take a look at what it all means and what conclusions we can draw, if any, from how things went. Joining me today, Curtis Hubbard, a political consultant in Colorado, former editorial page editor of the Denver Post. Welcome back, Curtis. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. And Jennifer Rogla, executive director here at the Center for Western Priorities, and herself, a veteran of more than one campaign in her former life. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here today. So let's dive in right off the top. Was this a good election for public lands, Jen? I think overall, it was a great election for public lands. Uh, candidates across the West have highlighted their support for public lands throughout this campaign season. And since CWP started running our Winning the West campaign in 2016, we've seen more candidates highlight a pro-public lands message as a way to connect with Western voters and people we, we like to call outdoor voters. So if you looked at this election, say, the day before... Uh, that, that Monday before, pundits, at least in, in Washington, expected two of the closest races to be here in the West. You had Michael Bennett in Colorado. You had Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, both defending their Senate seats. In the end, they both won, but Bennett won in an absolute blowout. Cortez Masto barely made it to 50%. Curtis, do you think there's a lesson here beyond just differences in the electorate between the two states? Is Colorado 13 or 14 points bluer than Nevada? Does that just explain the difference here? I, I think Colorado dislikes Donald Trump and Trump acolytes um, double digits more um, than voters in, in Nevada. I mean, we saw um, in both the um, Bennett's race and then other races uh, for, for, for Congress, uh, a, a real disdain for um, the election deniers or the MAGA Republicans um, here in Colorado, um, with really um, with the exception um, uh, of Lauren Boebert, whose race is still too close to call, um, all of the real prominent um, uh, Trump-endorsed or Trump-supporting candidates uh, lost big here in Colorado on election night. Jen, I think it's interesting that Joe O'Day, Bennett's opponent, was really not one of those hardcore ultra MAGA Republicans. He very much tried to run towards the middle, but we saw Senator Bennett run hard towards public lands. I think you saw what well, we did see Senator Bennett run hardcore towards public lands. I mean, he has been the champion of the CORE Act. He's introduced this legislation multiple times uh, over the course of his career. And uh, when it stalled in the Senate, 
He asked President Biden to come to Colorado, designate parts of the Core Act as national monuments. And we saw, you know, a presidential visit from uh, President Biden, and he designated Camp Hale, uh, the 10-mile divide, 10-mile range uh, national monument. Sorry, I'm mixing up the title there. (laughs) On the flip side, you saw Joe O'Day run towards the land seizure Mm -hmm. uh, uh, position. And instead of embracing public lands, like we've seen in our polling where public lands is an issue that unites Democrats and Republicans, Joe O'Day you know, went went full land seizure. And I think it's notable that on election night, the first picture that the White House sends out from the, the POTUS Twitter account is the president on the phone congratulating winners. And he is wearing a Camp Hale Continental Divide National Monument hat. What, what went through your mind, Jen or, or Ed Curtis, when you saw that picture? That was not a subtle message. Uh, and if if any candidates who saw that photo, uh, I, I think that was a signal that, uh, one, the president was invited to Colorado, and it was a huge accomplishment for Senator Bennett. And two, there are some candidates out there who were in much tighter races who could have had uh, you know, that opportunity to have a, a presidential visit with a national monument in their backyard. Yeah. And and, um, just to piggyback on that idea, swag matters. That's what the political consultant uh, in in me thought. Uh, You know, if if, if someone send them home with a souvenir. Exactly. If someone hadn't thought to get the hats made up or the jackets made up, uh, who knows uh, uh, what he would have been wearing instead. All right. Let's head over to the House, uh, New Mexico's second congressional district. You have Gabe Vasquez picking up a seat that had been held by Republican Yvette Harrell in a big oil and gas district. And Jen Gabe is uh, certainly a, a conservationist through and through with quite the, quite the resume. Gabe has spent much of his career working to protect public lands in New Mexico and making sure that New Mexicans have uh, access to public lands. This, this was a big upset uh, in a big upset, uh, for the um, against the oil and gas industry in New Mexico, Ed Harrell was, uh, you know, their their champion, and I think uh, Gabe is just going to be a terrific uh, member of the New Mexico delegation, and I anticipate that he's going to be a leader on public lands uh, in the Congress. And Curtis, similarly, you you had a new seat in Colorado, the eighth district not a public lands district, but that is a race where oil and gas really took center stage uh, because of where that district is located. Yeah. And Dr. Caraveo um, made um, the health and safety uh, of residents in that uh, district and environmental justice, uh, particularly for lower income and communities of color, uh, big issues um, in her campaign that it's, uh, it's not simply about, uh, you know, drill, baby, drill, um, but that drilling has consequences and that uh, we need to look out for those communities who've historically been ignored um, or haven't had a seat at the table uh, when it came time to talk about uh, the impacts of drilling. And then you mentioned the uncalled race here, Lauren Boebert, a seat that almost no one thought was competitive, maybe outside of that district where Adam Frisch kept saying, hey guys, I've got a shot here. And lo and behold, he did. 
Uh, right now, Bobert is ahead by, I think, about a thousand votes as we're recording this. That may be enough for her to end up holding on in a district that is heavily, heavily Republican in terms of partisan breakdown. Now, help me understand. Obviously, Bobert is outside of that very tiny corner of the party, a, a national laughingstock. But other cartoonish figures in the party, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, didn't run into the same sort of trouble that Boebert did last week. Do either of you have a take on how Colorado in particular and and Boebert's anti-conservation, anti-public lands positions may have played in this district that does rely heavily on an outdoor recreation economy? Look, I think Lauren Boebert was elected in a primary by a right-wing MAGA, uh, you know, base. And that just does, that doesn't reflect the number of unaffiliated voters on the Western Slope, uh, other voters, Democratic voters who really understand that public lands uh, to Western Colorado, that's the lifeblood. That's the lifeblood of the recreation, outdoor recreation economy. We've seen, you know, more people move to the West Slope because they want to be close to public lands and the tourism economies is incredibly important. So I think, you know, the, the moderate voter on the West, she does not represent the moderate voter on the Western Slope. Yeah. And I would agree with that. And I think she misread um, her victory from 2020, right? Um, mm. She didn't win by 50 points um, in that district where uh, a Marjorie Taylor Greene did and came from a much safer uh, Republican district. Uh, after redistricting, generally speaking, this was viewed as a Republican plus nine district. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the Republicans didn't like um, how she composed herself, uh, her, her interest in um, making trouble and making headlines as opposed to looking out for the interests of the district. Um, so they either uh, didn't vote to re-elect her, uh, you know, left that blank, or crossed over and, and voted for Adam Frisch, who uh, presented himself as a more moderate um, alternative um, and really um, pushed hard on the what he called the angertainment aspect uh, of Congresswoman Boebert's um, approach to governing. And, you know, he was a public lands champion as well. He, he took some positions on uh, oil and gas drilling that, that may not um, jibe 100 percent with those of us who live here on the front range. Um, but they certainly resonated with that district, which stretches all across western Colorado and down into to southern Colorado. And I think there's a lesson for us in that district moving forward, those of us um, who are Democrats, I should say, and those of us who care um, about public lands. And, and that is that it's winnable with the right candidate um, and that um, you can't take anything for granted, even if you're an incumbent uh, and you think you've, you've got, it, got it locked up. Will and, and Curtis, you sent over just this afternoon uh, an exit poll that came out from Colorado that really got into where some of those gaps are. Um, obviously, you're, you work more on the Democratic side, but it seems like there is probably a warning in there for any number of Republicans as well if they choose to look at those numbers. 
Yeah, we're um, extremely lucky in Colorado on the Democratic side in that we benefit from real high-quality pollsters. Um, Chris Keating at Keating Research based in Telluride was one of the first people to point out that uh, Adam Frisch had an opportunity uh, against Congresswoman Boebert. And then Global Strategies Group um, releases uh, its Mountaineer poll um, several times a year, and and I help uh, participate with that project and that showed um, that uh, before the election, things were going to be good for Democrats. And in this exit poll that was released today, um, two things on the public lands front that were interesting. When we asked um, voters for their top issues, um, top one or two issues, uh, paired with uh, climate, the environment, and public lands, it was a top 10 issue. I think it was number eight overall. And then we asked um, uh, respondents, who did, we, who did they think will do a better job uh, on public lands. And the margin uh, overall was about plus 14. Um, Democrats would do a better job than Republicans. But where it mattered was that the unaffiliated voters thought Democrats would do a better job than Republicans by almost 30 points. And in Colorado, like a lot of the Western states, increasingly uh, the electorate is moving away from the two parties and you've got uh, it's really a competition for the unaffiliated voter. And this is an issue um, that resonates with unaffiliated voters and that can really turn uh, particularly close elections. And Jen, that seems consistent with what we've seen from both Re- Republican and Democratic pollsters in our winning the West poll that Center for Western Priorities has put out uh, or the, the Colorado College State of the Rockies poll that comes out every year does seem to indicate that there is a, a recognition of outdoor issues as being important writ large for, for swing voters in particular. Oh, exactly. I think, you know, public lands issues are issues that unite Westerners. I, I think what we've seen is, you know, large majorities in all of the states where, where we focus uh, that public lands uh, cut across party lines. And there's an opportunity uh, for for candidates and, and elected officials to connect with voters on these issues in a way uh, that really is kind of to the core of being a Westerner. Yeah. And Jen mentioned it earlier. It's not just about conservation. It's also about economic development. And many communities across the West are figuring out um, that there's a real opportunity in the outdoor recreation economy, uh, as opposed to riding the boom and bust waves of extractive industries. Let me open it up. Any races that either surprised you or you think are noteworthy or that you are still keeping an eye on uh, as we're, we're waiting for final results from some of these house races in particular? I think one race I want to flag for our listeners is the uh, 7th Congressional District here in Colorado. It was redrawn uh, during uh, redistricting this year, and it includes more counties uh, with public land. So you have Chafee County, you have Park County, Chafee County is home to Browns Canyon National Monument, one of my personal favorites. Uh, And I expect that the freshman uh, member of Congress that will be headed back there, Brittany Pedersen, will make public lands a priority uh, during her uh, first term in Congress. Yeah, and I would point to, um, I think that's a great flag, Jen. And then uh, the Arizona Senate race, uh, Mark Kelly uh, winning there and uh, Cortez Masto winning in Nevada. 
Um, it, and, and even Michael Bennett here uh, in Colorado, you know, the, the Western U.S. Um, really helped hold the U.S. Senate uh, for Democrats, which is great. Um, that we're going to be um, the second verse, same as the first in 2024. Um, uh, Kristen Cinema uh, is up for re-election. John Tester in Montana. Uh, will be up. Um, so that will be a huge challenge. And then Joe Manchin is up in West Virginia. And, and we've obviously watched uh, Manchin, you know, sort of pull the levers uh, in the Senate, uh, and notably on the Inflation Reduction Act and uh, corresponding legislation, given the tight majorities. And so I think that bears watching uh, moving forward all those uh, races and control of the Senate for 2024. I appreciate your optimism that you think Kristen Sinema is running again, but we'll see about that. <laughs> uh, uh, such a, she's up. <laughs> She's up. <laughs> Whether she's in or not, we'll see. Uh, I just want to flag a couple other names that I'm sure are going to be important uh, down the road. First is Harriet Hageman, who won uh, in Wyoming, the House seat there that was Liz Cheney's. Uh, and Hageman, uh, in addition to being one of these ultra-mega types, is also a pretty extreme uh, anti-public lands figure, notable uh, for her lawyering even uh, before she entered the house. Uh, so she's going to be someone to keep an eye on. And then we have the return of Ryan Zinke, who, again, squeaked out a very narrow victory in what on paper looks like a much wider house seat uh, in Montana. Again, hard to tell there how much of that is uh, a reflection of uh, of the kind of buffoonery that he brought to the job as interior secretary. But I think it's important to remember that before he went in all Trump, he was a pretty moderate conservation minded member of Congress. And I think that probably an open question what Ryan Zinke shows up for the job this time around. I think Aaron, that, uh, that, uh, he burned that bridge, right? When he uh, joined the Trump administration and attempted to, well, he did. He he, he helped, uh, you know, shrink Bears Ears and Grand Staircase National Monument. I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll see the old Ryan Zinke, uh, but I am not, not holding your hold breath. My breath. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's look ahead first to the lame duck session uh, and then on to 2023. Uh, are we going to see any action, do you think, Jen, on public lands coming up in December? I th th That is another place where I am not holding my breath. I think there's opportunity for executive action on public lands. I think we are hopeful that the president will designate uh, a Viquame National Monument in Nevada and potentially Castner Range. A national monument in Texas, but on a legis on the legislative front, uh, I am I don't see a public lands package coming together. Curtis, you're hearing any rumblings on anything that might somehow make it over the finish line before the end here? Not um, in in our universe um, as members of the conservation community and public lands community. Look, it's going to be a, a challenge. There's some big issues. Um, uh, debt limit um, being sort of first and foremost among them that have to be um, that have to be tackled, um, and it's going to take you know a few more days, if not a few more weeks, to sort out just how close things are and the um, you know who's going to be leading um, the majority and minority um, in both chambers. I guess um, 
The Republicans picked their uh, new speaker uh, this afternoon, um, but their margin, you know, is going to be tight and they're going to need uh, Democratic votes and they're going to need to keep um, the Freedom Caucus uh, in line and, and they might need Democrats. So um, I'm not I'm not holding out hope for a lot of big accomplishments uh, here in the next uh, two months. The, the one thing that I will flag that maybe will get done and we can hope it does is Laura Daniel Davis who is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Land and Minerals Management. She has been nominated for the Assistant Secretary job uh, and has been stuck uh, now for more than a year waiting for a vote on the floor. She's been made it, made it out of committee twice on a tie vote and just needs that enough time on the floor for a floor vote. Uh, and in terms of nomination votes, it would sure be nice if uh, if Majority Leader Schumer found the time to get her nomination over the finish line. Couldn't agree more, Aaron. I think Laura has waited very patiently uh, for this vote. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of important work going on at the Department of Interior when it comes to oil and gas leasing reform and the rulemaking that needs to happen uh that uh, because of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, there's a lot of work there that needs to be done. And and the president should have the people that he nominated confirmed to do the work uh, that he's asked them to do. Um, I'd also flag that we are expecting to see permitting reform come mm-hmm. back up during the lame duck. Uh, Joe Manchin, uh, you know, pulled the permitting reform from uh, the omnibus uh or spending bill this fall. And I think we anticipate that that will come up again. But it seems like politically that landscape has not changed since before when you had a large number of Democrats in the house saying they have no interest in what Manchin was selling. And it didn't seem like Manchin was eager to go and sit down and hammer out some sort of other permitting deal. No, I think, I think that's right. But we we will see. I, I know yeah. my crystal ball is not very clear right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's go even further out then. The next Congress uh, at this point looks like Republicans will take the House, maybe by two seats, maybe four or six on the far end. Curtis, if you are advising President Biden, do you tell him, "Hey, with that smaller margin, you only need to pick off a handful of moderate Republicans to work with Democrats." you can have a legislative agenda and get stuff done. Or do you tell him, no, that is going to be a dumpster fire, break out the pen and, and just start, start working. Yeah. I think it's a little bit more of, uh, of, of the latter. Um, there are going to be opportunities, um, I think on, uh, economic development, but keep in mind that, um, stymieing, uh, the agenda, uh, has been part of the playbook, um, uh, since, at least 2008. Uh, and I don't, uh, know that even with a, um, a close margin now that that will change too much. So that the opportunity is there, the public support is there, um, for doing that. And look, the, the, the reality is, is that 2024, um, historically, um, would shape up to be a better election for, uh, the, the president's party, um, than these midterms. 
Um, the economy is is you know still going to be front and center. I think uh, reproductive health will still be front and center um, as issues, um, and I think climate conservation and public lands uh, will as well uh, as we move forward. And so it's important um, that that he demonstrate that he's taking action on all of those, uh, notably. Um, uh, uh, on the latter, uh, particularly given his support for 30 by 30, uh, when we're looking at being, you know, four years in uh, uh, to the to the decade uh, by the next election. Jen, your thoughts on uh, on 2023 heading into 2024? I think the president has an opportunity to uh, build a conservation legacy that that rivals some of the greatest conservation presidents in our history. Uh, President Obama, President Franklin Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, I, I think the the opportunity is there, and my hope is that this administration is aggressive uh, when it comes to leaning into the into that opportunity. All right, we'll wrap it up there. That will do it for this episode of the Landscape. If you enjoyed this please leave us a a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. You can find us on Twitter, at least until Twitter collapses into the void. After that, you can find me on Mastodon. Keep those emails coming, especially with ideas for more guests and topics. You don't need to use Twitter to just, you know, hit that compose button. Uh, Podcast at westernpriorities.org is where to send your emails. Jen Rokla, Executive Director here at CWP. Curtis Hubbard with Onsite Public Affairs. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you, Aaron. Kate will be back with us before Thanksgiving. I'm Aaron Weiss. On behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, thank you for listening to The Landscape. Mm -hmm.